0: Hello and welcome to a special episode of Working It, where we'll be discussing one of the FT's most popular subjects, the end of work. From the great resignation and the hundreds of thousands of people disappearing from the workforce, to the Reddit anti-work forum that attracts millions of members, our relationship to work has profoundly shifted during the pandemic. This is our second episode in the Working It most read format, where we delve deeper into the topics that are sparking debate, we talk about them and then we unpack the responses from you, our readers and listeners. Today I'm joined by Sarah O'Connor, FT Employment Columnist, and from New York by our working it regular Taylor Nicole Rogers, US Labour Inequality Correspondent. Both have written recently about the future of work and about the big employment trends upending the workplace. Sarah and Taylor, hello. Hello. Hi. So I want to start off by saying, what do we mean by the end of work? I've given this episode a kind of catchy name to be dramatic and clicky, but it's not that much of a stretch. So I define the end of work more widely as an end to what we've traditionally thought of as the way we see the place and role of work in our lives. And the pandemic's upended that. Our relationship with our employers has changed and millions of people have just walked away from jobs they don't like. So I'd like to talk to you today about the topics and trends that might also be called a redefinition of work and something that might give us some signposts for what it's going to look like in future. And I wanted to start with you, Sarah. Is this the end of work and has the pandemic hastened the demise of something that was really virtually unchanged since Victorian times in some aspects, you know, the idea of fixed hours of labour for pay?
1: Has something really profound shifted here? So after about a decade on the FT's economics team, I feel obliged to start with some numbers. (laughs) Um, So, you know, is this the end of work? Let's take the UK where I live and where you live, Isabel. So the latest data, if you look at all 16 to 64-year-olds, 75.5% of them are working. So it's definitely not the end of work. But if we look at what that number looked like just before the pandemic, it was 76.5. That doesn't sound like much of a difference, right? It sounds like splitting hairs. But actually, economists think that is quite important because it's the real change in the trend. For years and years, we were seeing that the proportion of people who were working was going up and up and up. And what's happened since the pandemic is the proportion of people of working age who are actually working has gone down. And economists are talking about the missing million here in the UK. So they think there are about a million people who would have been working or looking for work if the pre-pandemic trends had carried on the way they had been going and who now are simply not present in the labour market. So there's definitely something going on in terms of people who are not working who we might be expecting to work. But it's still a very small minority, obviously.
0: Thanks, Sarah. I wanted to bring Taylor in because you've reported a lot about people leaving their jobs in the States. And some of the things that Sarah have talked about, I think, has come through in your reporting. Why are people leaving their jobs? And is it profound? Or are they just being bullshit and they're not putting up with bad jobs anymore? Or is there something
2: bigger? I think the answer is yes and all of the above. I think. One thing that has really driven the American approach to work since the Industrial Revolution is our obsession with the Puritan work ethic of working hard and making that a central part of your identity. And I think that has really broken down over the past decade, but that really sped up during the pandemic. And so I think people are really starting to question, is work going to be a driving part of my life? And if it is, how can I make that work more enjoyable? So that goes back to what we've been calling the great resignation, the record-breaking numbers of Americans who have been quitting their jobs every month. I mean, we know from the data that many of those people are, in fact, finding new jobs. But the kinds of jobs that employers are having trouble filling are the jobs that are those hard shift work, blue-collar jobs like Sarah was referencing. And so I think this is kind of the end of work as we know it. And It's the end of workers being able to tolerate almost anything in order to get that paycheck. So I think it is really going to profoundly shift what kind of services are available in our society and what kind of services are provided by, I don't know, technology or replaced or redirect in some kind of way.
0: So the workers are leaving, but have you seen any evidence, either of you, that employers are shifting? Because it always seems to me that society is slightly ahead of what the employers are doing. Are they still living in that cloud cuckoo land where they can
2: dictate terms? Some are. I've definitely noted a lot of surprise from the employers that I've interviewed. Like I remember very distinctly one employer, I believe it was a, a smoothie shop, saying, you know, I cannot believe that these teenagers have the audacity to say that they want $15 an hour for this job and they want weekends off and they want paid time off. That is unheard of and we're absolutely not going to do that. Well, if you have that attitude at the end of the day, you're not going to have anyone working for you. So I think employers are slowly starting to come around. And there's also the automation piece. A lot of employers are saying if I can't find someone to stand at this cash register, you know, potentially exposing themselves to COVID and working long hours for this amount of pay. Maybe we're going to shift to using a QR code or a self-checkout or something like that to enable consumers to serve themselves. So we've seen a lot of that
0: as well. Sarah, you've written a lot about the gig work and the gig economy. Have you seen Mm -hmm. any evidence that that's changing as we come out of the pandemic? Are there better jobs available for people?
1: Well, I think this is one of the areas where we have to be a bit careful that you know yes people are turning around and saying this isn't good enough and i I don't want to do this and you see that in the gig economy as well so we've seen that platforms like uber and lyft and deliveroo have been struggling to get hold of people to work on those platforms because they might have better options right now but what that goes back to to a certain extent is a cyclical thing which is that right now the loan market is just super tight. And so people have more bargaining power because there are so few unemployed people. And in the UK, you know, we had no one can really count the number, but we're pretty sure that there was an outflux of migrants from Europe during the pandemic who haven't come back for the most part. And so there's simply fewer people around to do the jobs and that gives people the ability to say no in a way that wasn't possible five years ago, certainly not 10 years ago after the financial crisis, where people really had to suck it up and take anything that was on offer. So one of the things that I've been wondering about a lot is how many of these trends would persist if the macro environment changed, you know, if actually another recession came along or if the labour market became less tight, and we we just don't know that. But yeah, certainly from the gig economy point of view, obviously there was a lot of demand for certain kinds of gig services during the pandemic, particularly delivering food to people's houses and that sort of thing.
0: And one of the big hits in recent weeks in the FT has been a piece you wrote, Taylor, about the Reddit anti-work forum And that's sort of beyond the end of work. We're looking at people who, you know, are refusing to work or also there's a lot of people bound up in this so-called FIRE movement. And I'd be really interested to hear what you found out when you looked into the Reddit anti-work. Is it that people are anti-work or is it that they're anti-bad work? What's going on there?
2: I think maybe the best way to sum it up was to say that these people are not purely anti-work. They're more just like pro-leisure. So a big part of the movement is creating time in your daily schedule, your weekly schedule to do things other than work. So it's not like every single person in this massive, massive forum is not working at all. But most of them are looking for ways to just work less. So maybe that's leaving your 80 hour a week finance job to do a marketing job where you can work 40 hours a week. Or maybe if you're already at that marketing job, you're stepping down to a part-time freelance gig to find time to do something else. And I think that's part of a, a bigger cultural shift that we're seeing right now in the States. So, is that something you've come across in your reporting? Because I
0: know you write a lot about creative industries And what Claudia Golden, the economist you've interviewed, terms greedy jobs, which I had not heard before. And I think that really goes to the heart of what a lot of these anti-work people are talking about, isn't it? With the jobs that take over your whole life.
1: Yeah, definitely. So Claudia Golden, economist at Harvard, has been writing about the gender pay gap. And her feeling is that one of the factors lying behind the gender pay gap, particularly in those higher paid jobs like law, accountancy, consultancy, Banking is the fact that these jobs are very greedy, which means that they want to consume your whole life. They expect you to be on call whenever they want you to be on call. They want you to be able to fly to Singapore to work on a deal if that's what is necessary. They expect very, very long hours. And indeed, you know, your bonus in in law is often kind of linked to the number of billable hours that you manage to squeeze into a year. And yes, I think you're right that part of the rebellion, I suppose, against work is against those kinds of jobs. And we saw that, you know, do you remember that letter that the Goldman Sachs, young Goldman Sachs analysts wrote? It was a kind of slide deck, wasn't it, for their bosses, just saying like, you know, these terms and conditions are ridiculous. Our mental health is suffering. We're working ridiculous hours and we don't want to do it anymore. You're seeing similar things in law. You know, law firms are struggling to hold on to junior lawyers. And I think there was always a sort of Faustian pact with those jobs that you work incredibly hard, you sacrifice. Your personal life, your social life. And eventually you make a partner and you make a huge amount of money, and and so it's worth it. And I think there are just more people, particularly younger people, saying, I don't want to take that deal. I don't like that deal. Surely there's a different deal that can be struck here whereby I can still pursue a career in the law if that's what I'm passionate about, but I don't have to give up my whole life in return.
0: And that's a massive shift. It's not the end of work, but it's the end of perhaps excessive and mental health shattering work, might be coming into view.
1: Only if the banks and law firms and consultancies respond to it. And, you know, so far, I don't think we're really seeing that. Goldman Sachs's response to that slide deck was to offer them more money.
2: You know, It's like the most Goldman response ever. I think it was also like you can have Saturday afternoons off something like that as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Woohoo! But
1: I think part of the problem is the people at the top of these firms are the people for whom that deal was fine and you know right. they they went through that they think why shouldn't other people go through that they don't see a problem with it and so i think there's a real generational problem there
2: i think you're totally right and i think part of the problem is as that generation ages out of the workforce you're going to see a really big shift in what the remaining workers are willing to do also there's just going to be fewer of us at least here in the united states we're in the middle of a really big demographic shift where the baby boomer generation is retiring and retiring faster than we expected. And then we also have had stalled immigration numbers going back to the Trump era before the pandemic and younger workers who are willing to work fewer hours. So we're really just going to have to rethink, you know, how we can run a law firm where people are only willing to work. Half what they were willing to work 10 years ago.
0: And then I guess, in addition to that, the caregiving that's gone on in a pandemic, some of that is not going away, is it? And the only way to keep women in the workforce might be to offer them asynchronous work to come back to that.
1: Yes, potentially. I was in a law firm yesterday meeting their partners in the employment side, and they were saying that, you know, so many of their clients are coming to them and saying, you know, how do we respond to what? employees want now. And a lot of them, their instinct is that they want to go back to the way things were before. Their employees are saying, no, we don't want to. And they're sort of getting into this standoff and they're calling their lawyers to say, how much firm ground are we on here? If someone wants to live somewhere else, or in fact, they moved somewhere else during the pandemic, can we cut their pay? Can we offer them like a different contract? And so I think there's so much still to be worked out. And some employers are obviously really embracing the possibilities of more kind of asynchronous work and less geographically tethered work. And, and others, I think, um, just wish none of this had happened and want to go back to things the way they used to be. So we'll see which of those models sort of wins out in the end. I suspect it will be the former. Oh, you reckon? Yeah, I think most employers are going to end up adapting to what employees want, not least because for the first time in a long time, we have the whip hand.
0: This is incredible. And Taylor, I wanted to ask you, one of the things I've always wondered about is how people walk away from jobs when they're not well off or, you know, they don't have savings. It's all very well if you're a lawyer to walk away from your job, you'll probably get another one and you can probably pay your mortgage for a few months. But how are people affording to walk away from work, especially if they're not picking anything up immediately?
2: So I'll give you the economic answer and then I'll give you what I think actually happened. So what a lot of economists have said is that because the American social safety net expanded so much during the pandemic, people were able to take those extra savings they might have built up from getting a stimulus check, from getting expanded unemployment benefits, from getting a child tax credit and carry over those three, four weeks that they might have been in between jobs and find something better or stay at home with their children while their children's school was hybrid or mostly virtual, whatever. But I have a hard time fully buying that because we're still kind of in a tight labor market situation. And there has been no child tax credit in 2022. It's been several, several months since expanded unemployment benefits were rolled back. There has been no stimulus check for quite a while. So I can't imagine how any family could take this long to continue to go on without any extra help. But I want to go back to the caregiving piece that Sarah hit on earlier. I think that is a really big part of it here in the States, because if you think about how expensive it is to put a small child in daycare when you need to go work your minimum wage job, it might actually be more financially savvy for the family for you to stay at home and take care of that child yourself or to stay home and take care of that elderly parent yourself than Work and pay someone else more than you actually earned in the day to do that caregiving. And we actually saw a massive breakdown in our caregiving system here in the States. There was a report, gosh, I guess about a week ago now, showing that there were around 200,000 people in the nursing home system that died during the pandemic. So that's both residents and their caregivers. And I think people really notice that and are really saying, maybe it's not worth it for me to work anymore, to send my mother, and my grandparents to a nursing home where I don't think that they're going to get the kind of care that they deserve. Or maybe it's better for my child to stay home than to be in a classroom with a mask or in a classroom where they might next week be at home learning on Zoom. So I think that is definitely a really big part of what's happening.
0: So I've seen a couple of articles recently about ambition or anti-ambition. We've had one in the FT and I think there was one in the New York Times. This seems to be a really sort of big trend suddenly.
1: Sarah, do you think people are less ambitious? I don't think so, no. I mean, I think it's the kind of phrase that clearly strikes a chord with people right now. I don't want to dismiss it entirely but i don't think we've all had a complete personality transplant and i think particularly younger generations have been you know brought up to be quite sort of striving and i don't think that that has suddenly come to an end it might be that people who may be ambitious for different things maybe you're ambitious for a career that works with having a family maybe you're ambitious for setting up a side hustle perhaps we're not channeling it all into the upward escalator career that we once were what do you think Taylor?
2: I think you're right. I I know people really spoke about this right when the lay flat movement was picking up in China. I think that ambition might be shifting from I want to be a partner at the law firm to I just want to be a good lawyer who also takes really great vacations. I think the pandemic really made people sit back and think about what is left of life when work is gone or how is my life when work is all I have? And I think people are really shifting their ambition to more fun things
1: i mean you mentioned the life lap movement taylor and you know i think particularly in in china but certainly not only in china their parents have invested so much in their education and that system is so intense and pretty punishing really and in china you're competing for like a small number of decent jobs and so you know you can see why people might turn around and say you know i've just had enough of this particularly if what you get at the end of all of that striving is not what you hoped it would be, or the great job that you got perhaps during the pandemic, your employer didn't treat you as well as you thought you would be treated and you become a bit disillusioned and think, actually, maybe I've been channeling my energies in the wrong direction here. I think there's some of that going on, probably. And I wanted to round off a bit
0: by asking you both what are some of the other ways that people are planning to work less? What are the more imaginative things that you've come across in your reporting? Taylor, what have you found that people are doing in order not to make the end of work, but just to work less or to be more
2: fulfilled? Minimalism has been an answer that I've been hearing a lot that I was kind of surprised to hear. I think because you and I probably read all the stories about people were buying so many more goods during the pandemic as opposed to services. But I think Maybe we're swinging back in the other direction. I've heard a lot of people say, like, I can do without the really nice couch. I can do without the really nice rug. And I would rather have less and work less, which I think is not something you hear a lot in America, especially in suburban America.
0: And Sarah, I've read a lot about crypto and meme trading. Is that just a bubble or do you think that's going to become a much bigger sort of viable way of working?
1: I am very old school on this. I think this is one of the areas where I really start to feel my geriatric millennial status. I think it's all just a complete bubble. But that said, a lot of people are putting hope in it, right? So, you know, I have interviewed people who have decided that they don't need to work because they can make their money off crypto or off day trading or, you know, there's so many platforms that have basically democratized investment, which is not a bad thing in itself. But certainly there are people who have probably bumped up their incomes during the the kind of steep rise in crypto prices. I had a really interesting chat, actually, not that long ago with a guy in the US who I first interviewed him years and years ago, he works in warehousing. And he's always been looking for other ways to make money. And years ago, when I spoke to him, he was working on Amazon Mechanical Turk, which if you don't know, it is this Bizarre sort of hidden labor market whereby people work online doing these very small tasks for small amounts of money, but you can kind of rack them up over time. And it's often doing stuff that lies behind artificial intelligence, so cleaning up data sets and and training AI and that sort of thing. But when I caught up with him more recently, he was saying that some of his friends had been trading crypto and, and making huge gains. And he actually felt really frustrated about it because he was saying that, you know, in order to get in on that, you need a certain amount of money to begin with. And so he felt that he was not able to access that sort of upward trend in prices because he just didn't have the capital to invest. So for him, it was another example of the inequalities that are running through American society. And I know
0: another big thing in the pandemic has been MLM schemes. Perhaps you can explain what that is for audiences who don't know, Taylor.
2: Yes. So multi-level marketing has been something I've been thinking about for a long time, especially as it targets women. So fundamentally, these are companies that sell some sort of product. Most of them are makeup or clothing, some like nutritional supplements where you, as a business owner, recruit other people to sell the product under you and you get a kickback from what they sell. So really the incentive is not to sell products on your own, but to sign up other people. So if you remember LuLaRoe and all of the drama that went around that, that's one of the famous ones. Ronan Fields is a skincare one that you also might've heard of. But these companies target women, particularly stay-at-home moms, and sell them this business opportunity as a way to make money while staying at home and Also, one of the phrases that you hear a lot is, you know, you make money while you're staying at home and then you retire your husband because you're making so much money selling this whatever product on Facebook and at parties and et cetera, et cetera. So there's been a huge bump up in those, but I don't know how well that is going to last because there's also has been a huge amount of backlash in the past couple of years for business owners that have been ripped off or been really screwed over when the pyramid buckles at the bottom. So I don't know how sustainable the MLM boom will be, but it's definitely something to watch out for and definitely a place people are turning to avoid traditional work simply because it's less time intensive. (laughs) I wanted to round
0: off by thinking back to the before times when I was working on the opinion desk at the Financial Times and we had so many articles about how the robots were coming for our jobs. Are they still coming for
1: our jobs? Yes, it's funny to think, isn't it? Before the pandemic, everyone was worried that there would be too many spare workers lying around, you know, because robots would be doing everything and there'd be tons of unemployed people. And what on earth would we do with them all? And of course, we've ended up, At least right now, we're the opposite situation, which is employers can't find enough people, human people, you know. So what does that tell you? It tells you that a lot of that robot rhetoric was overblown. A lot of those studies were based on some, I wouldn't say dubious, but some assumptions that were not particularly falsifiable. And that doesn't mean that robots aren't still a big thing. Indeed, we've seen more investment in robotics and automation during the pandemic for obvious reasons, particularly in things like warehousing. Employers always have an incentive to automate if they can, if it's economically rational to do so. So I think we'll continue to see robotics creeping into different kinds of jobs. But I think every wave of automation that we've seen since the beginning of time has put some people out of work, but it's also created new kinds of work, new kinds of jobs. And I don't personally see any reason that this one will be any different. That doesn't mean that certain people won't really suffer. They probably will. And they did in the past. But I don't think that robots are going to make us all redundant.
2: Do you agree, Taylor? I do. I think it's important to note, as Sarah kind of alluded to, who the people who are going to get left behind are. And just in America, it's going to be a lot of people who have less education and less transferable skills. So if you think about the new model of grocery store where you walk in, and Amazon's famous for these, where you walk in, you scan your Palm or your Amazon app, and pick up whatever you want, and then walk out without ever visiting a cashier. Well, there are still people in those stores. There's usually a security guard, maybe one or two employees who are greeting you, answering questions. But the jobs that are created by those kind of stores are computer programmers and AI experts who can make all of that technology work. And so you maybe have... 10, 15 people who are either going to be unemployed and have to find somewhere else to do that retail job or have to upskill to where they can do tech support on the 1800 sensors that are measuring which avocados you pick up. So I think like Sarah said, it will be painful for some people. But overall, I think what we're seeing is a push to make these low wage jobs easier so that more people are willing to keep doing them. Thanks very much, both.
1: Thank you for having me. Thanks, it was great.
0: It was great to talk with Taylor and Sarah about some of the themes they've been talking about in terms of work, the end of work, anti-work. But I also had a look through the comments under some of their articles. And the FT readers have some really thoughtful points and actually disagree quite profoundly. There's one under a long hour's culture column by Sarah O'Connor. I'm a lawyer. I knew what I was getting myself into. I can get up and leave whenever I want to, but I don't. And my colleagues largely don't. So apparently it is all worth it. But I do agree there should be a discussion. As while I think it's fair to demand this from lawyers and bankers for the salary they get, meaning long hours, it shouldn't be the case. At least 40% of my day I'm doing stuff I think is unnecessary and it's just wheel spinning under a desperate attempt to provide value or rack up more hours or deal with some inane request the partnership doesn't have the guts to say no to. A lot of these longer hours are filled with senseless stuff and that's the bigger issue. So a reader there really drilling down into something that often isn't talked about is that a lot of the work that we do do is not good work or useful work and maybe some of the points that are coming out of the pandemic will help us to refine some of that bad work. And here's another comment under a Sarah article, and it was one about bad bosses being a big reason for people leaving work, and that's a whole episode in itself, I think. But just to touch on it here, this is a great comment. Statistically, the percentage of narcissists and psychopaths, both well-known mental disorders among managers, is significantly higher than among the general population. I'm not sure if that's fact-checked. This is one of the main reasons of widespread dissatisfaction with jobs, i.e. there are tens of millions of terrible bosses who ruin the lives of employees and severely damage the value of their organisations. However, narcissists are masters of deceit and passing the blame, so once they've established themselves within an organisation, it's almost impossible to get rid of them. The most efficient cure is not to hire them. However, almost no organisation runs tests on narcissism as a part of their recruitment process. So, I'm sensing some history there in that comment, but it's a really interesting point and not one that gets covered often enough. You know a lot of people might be leaving work because they really hate their boss. So it was great to talk to Taylor and Sarah about the end of work and different ways of working. And I guess it's not the end of work, but it might be the end of employers dictating how we work. And in this moment, we've got a chance to seize back some of the initiative. And if you're a manager or a leader, now is the time to think differently. It is tricky, and I think a lot of people are very nervy. But there's something really important to be grasped here. And I think Sarah and Taylor have got to the heart of it. It's not the end of work, but it could be the beginning of something better. (laughs) with many thanks to Sarah O'Connor and Taylor Nicole Rogers for this episode. If you want to read Sarah and Taylor's articles about anti-work forums, gig work, the great resignation, greedy jobs and more, I'll put links in the show notes. And please do get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. We're at workingit at ft.com and I'm at Isabel Baric on Twitter. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. With thanks to our producer, Anna Sinfield, executive producer, Joe Wheeler. We have editorial direction from the FT's Renee Kaplan and production support from Persis Love. Thanks for listening.